The scripture reading will be from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. One of the reasons we picked that song, The Mission, was because it was a good transition from missions, very good for missions, but what we are proclaiming to those everywhere else is the truth. And uh, we, we sang, proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. And so that it's also a great transitional song into the certainties that John is talking about as we continue in our series. Now, we live in a time when certainty and conviction about what is true is not tolerated. Certainly often not appreciated. The politically correct attitude is one of uncertainty with nothing absolute. There's actually a new hermeneutics. New, hermeneutics is a science of interpretation of Scripture called the hermeneutics of humility. It's out there now. It's actually very dangerous uh, because what it says is, I'm too humble to think that I could ever know what the Bible really means. And so I can only offer my opinion, and I certainly can't say that this is in fact the truth. That's how Scripture, by many, is being interpreted. And those that buy into this pat themselves on the back, and they congratulate themselves for being so intellectually open and so humble in their attitude. But opinions and feelings tend to rule the mood of our day today. And unfortunately, the church, as it often does from the first century, as we talked about last, uh, last week, onwards, the church has fallen prey to the sort of postmodern inclusivism that wants to embrace everything everybody um, thinks as truth for them. And so the church in general has lost its convictions and lost its certainties. And as, as I was researching, I came across a very disturbing survey that was done, uh, done among evangelical Christians um, across the country. There's actually been a couple of them over the past few years, uh, one done by the Pew Foundation, some of you are aware of that um, organization, and one done by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research, um, and this is reported by Christianity, Christianity Today. Now, Chuck Colson referenced the Pew Foundation service, uh, survey excuse me, a few years ago, and he wrote this, quote, A Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life survey found rampant doctrinal ignorance among American Christians. 57% of evangelicals believed people who follow religions other than their own can enjoy eternal life. The results were so unexpected that Pew repeated the survey asking more specific questions. And the answers, Chuck Colson says, were virtually unchanged. Astonishingly, about half believed that everyone, atheists included, was going to end up in heaven. 
And then he asks this question, heaven for the godless? Now you may ask, so what are we calling evangelical? That, that was my question. <laughs> Seriously? What, what, what then is the definition of evangelical? Well, in 2015, Lifeway and the National Association of Evangelicals laid out a four-part definition. saying that Christians who strongly agree in the Bible as the highest authority, they believe in the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior, and that Jesus' death removes the penalty of sin, and that trust in Him alone brings salvation. So that's a definition, good definition, of what an evangelical is. So, with that definition in mind, look at some of the results of this survey that Legionnaire and Lifeway Research did, the most recent done just last year, in 2022. 26%, a quarter of evangelicals said the Bible is not literally true. Researchers said that this view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that resonate with them while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural views. More than half, 56% of evangelical respondents affirm that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals. This contradicts, of course, Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. A surprising 73% evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Of course, directly contradicts Scripture that's very clear that Jesus is part of the indivisible Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not created, but God you remember Jesus saying to Philip in, in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's the same thing. Well, with that kind of thinking, I guess it's not too surprising that 43% of evangelicals affirmed the statement that says Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals. This effectively denies the divinity of Christ and his unity with God the Father as an equal member in the Trinity, who is one God in three persons. 57% also agreed to the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, which really denies the doctrine of original sin. And the fact that we are born with a sinful nature. Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. He also said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, interestingly, it's kind of a bizarre thing, but interestingly, on the positive side, 94% of evangelicals believe that sex outside of traditional marriage is sin. 91% believe that abortion is sin. But the trend, even for evangelicals, is to move, be moving away from absolute truth. They're succumbing to the culture. So this is a perfect time for us to get into 1 John. Because he is the apostle of certainties that we're going to be looking at. In a time of uncertainties, and this is a very certain epistle. Now, last week I mentioned that 36 times throughout these five chapters of 1 John, the verb to know 
in one form or another, is found in the epistle. I know, we know, you know. There's no, there, 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 it's, it's an absoluteness about it. There's no vagueness or equivocation as far as John is concerned. Another word that John uses is to have confidence. Chapter 2, verse 28, Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident, sure, Chapter 3, verse 21, he writes, We have confidence before God. Chapter 4, verse 17, By this, love is perfected in us that we may have confidence. Chapter 5, verse 14, And this is the confidence which we have before Him. John is absolutely certain about what he writes. He is confident in it, and he wants us to share that same confidence. This is so contrary to the mood today, which makes it almost seem insensitive to others if you're so confident in what you believe. Arrogant, unloving, out of touch. But folks, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, wants us to know and therefore wants us to be confident. There's one more thing that I'd like to point out about the major matters of certainty in this epistle before we start digging into the verses. John kind of gives us three major categories of certainty as he writes throughout the, his epistle. And he wants us to be very clear about it. The first one would be the theological certainty of the gospel message. The theological certainty of the gospel message. John wants us to know that he is certain about the gospel and that it is firm and that it is true. The second is the moral certainty of the law. John wants to understand that God has given a law and that we are bound to God's law and to be obedient to that law. Now, we're not talking about legalism here. We're not talking about salvation by, by, by keeping rules or by obedience to the law. Please don't misunderstand that. But chapter 2, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. That's strong, those strong words. And the truth is not in that person. Obviously, we'll be talking more about that when, when we get into chapter 2. And thirdly, there's a relational certainty that John wants to get across. John wants to, be, to affirm to us the, re, uh, the relational certainty of love. He brings, brings that up throughout his letter over and over again. But he, he's very precise in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now we're going to find that everything in this epistle falls under one of these three categories. Either the category of theological certainty regarding the gospel, the moral certainty regarding the law of God, or the relational certainty regarding love. These categories are categories of certainties and absolute that John lays out. Unequivocal, unarguable, divine truth. But they also serve as categories of absolutes that become the test of one's own spiritual state kind of a spiritual barometer of where we are with our relationship with Christ. You might be saying, boy, pastor, it sounds like you're going to get all judgy on us. No, that's not my intent. <laughs> We're going to lay out God's Word, and if there's any conviction that comes, it's going to be from, from the Holy Spirit, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in our lives where that is needed and clarify that for us. 
So this brings us now to the first four verses. And we've read those, first, those four verses last week, and we read them again uh, this morning. And John just steps right into it. There's no greetings, there's no introduction, no nothing. He's got something burning on his mind, and he needs to share that. And his theme through the whole letter, as we saw last time, is the word of life, who is, of course, the person of Jesus Christ on one hand, and it's the word of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. One and the same, the certainties about Christ, his person, his work, his gospel, that's his focus. So he starts out in these first four verses with the theological category of certainty. And he presents to us some of the features of the certainty of the word of life, which is our focus this morning. And the first way that John indicates that the word of life is certain, that Christ is certainly the Savior and the gospel is certainly the saving message, is by its permanence. It's permanence. He starts out in verse 1, that which was from the beginning. The very first thing he says, it was from the beginning. Now there are two ways of looking at that, and, and both really are correct. He's talking about the permanence of his person, the person of Jesus Christ. The word was from the beginning of time. That's how he starts the Gospel of John. You remember, in the beginning was the word. Referencing his purpose, uh, his person from the beginning of time. He was with God, he was God. And the next book he writes, which is the book of Revelations, as he's writing to these same seven churches that he's writing uh, the, this letter to, he says the same thing in different words. In chapter 1, verse 4 of Revelation, it says, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the permanence of Jesus Christ. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he who is unchangeable. Not only is he referencing the permanence of his person, he's also referencing the permanence of his message, the spoken word, the spoken truth. If Jesus doesn't change, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then his message, his truth, his word does not change. It too is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying this is not new stuff. This is not new. The word of life has not and never will change. Now you remember John is in his 80s when he's writing this, kind of the last, last man standing when it comes to the apostles. And he's saying what I'm going to tell you about the word of life, what I'm going to proclaim is what was from the beginning. Our message hasn't changed. I'm giving you the same old message that was preached by the other 11 and by Matthias who replaced Judas and certainly by, by Paul. It's the same old message that really was launched by John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Repentance, the kingdom is at hand. Forgiveness is possible and available. There is reconciliation with God and it's only through Jesus. Nothing changes. This is a direct shot at the heretics of that time with their new truths. And he's saying, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm bringing you back to the old and the sure. In fact, he's saying, avoid anything new. New is wrong. Stay with the old apostolic proclamation of Jesus Christ. And that's where all the cults and other religions have their conception, right? With new revelations. You've got the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and the doctrines and covenants of all new revelations written by Joseph Smith to be added to Scripture. You've got 
Science and Health and Keys to the Scriptures, which is one of the uh, central texts of the Christian science religion. Revelations received by Mary Baker Eddy back in the 1800s. You've got the harps of God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a new revelation received by Pastor Russell and Judge Rutherford. You've got the Quran, a new revelation given to Muhammad, because according to them, Christians had corrupted the scriptures and therefore God had to re-give the real truth. Anybody who comes to offer you some new revelation, certainly if it's contrary to scripture, it's wrong. This is the first thing that John wants to establish in his epistle, that this is a message that's been given from the beginning. It's a permanent, timeless, and eternal message. In Jude verse, verse 3, it's written again, Jude writes this, dear, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that was his original idea of what he wanted to write. I was eager to do that, but I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Once for all. It doesn't change. And he says we've, we're going to have to contend for it. We're going to have to fight for it. Not acquiesce. Don't allow people who think they're more enlightened to convince you otherwise. Don't fall for that. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 9, uh, chapter 13, excuse me, verse 9, it says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. In Galatians 1 6, the apostle says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, he writes, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So John starts out in a simple statement, that which was from the beginning. It's a solid place to start. The same old, same old. It's a message that is not going to change. Jesus is not going to change. The word of life is permanent. Secondly, and for the lack of a better term, it is sensible or sense-able. It's able to be perceived by the senses. There were those in the church that were trying to make religion into some kind of a mystical experience. But John wants us to know and wanted them to know that our senses can perceive and comprehend this word of life. And that's, that it's not mystical, something out there in the netherworld. Something only special spiritual people can experience. And John is saying Jesus is real. He says that which we have heard that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that's what we proclaim, he said. It's absolutely real. He is absolutely real. Then he doubles down in the next couple of verses. Uh, verse 2 and 3, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He's adamant about this. He said, I'm not talking about some transcendental experience. I'm not talking about some mystical thing going on here. I'm not talking about some secret gnosis, knowledge. I'm telling you that I experienced this word of life. I heard him. I saw him. I looked upon him. I touched him. And he's saying to them, reject all that other stuff that you may be hearing. Stand strong on the truth of the true manifestation of God in human flesh. Living 
breathing Son of God, the Word of life personified, the Word of life that was manifested. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he said, And the Word became what? Became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. And to emphasize this fact, he said we experienced him with our human senses. That's where the sensibility part comes in. Uh, we heard him. We heard him with our ears. Well, what did they hear? Well, they heard him speak. They heard him teach. They heard him rebuke. Uh, they, they heard him explain. Over a period of three years, he's saying we heard him every day. Even after he rose from the dead, we heard him. I heard the parables, all of them. Didn't miss any of them. I heard him preach in the synagogues. I heard him, heard him preach in the valleys and up on the hillsides and on, on the paths as we walked. I heard him teach in houses. I heard it all. I didn't miss any of it. I heard it firsthand. And not only did I hear him, he said, we have seen with our eyes. Not some kind of a vision. Sometimes, you know, in, in the mind's eye, right? Kind of in our imaginations. That's why he includes with my eyes, with our eyes, so that everybody knows he's talking about this a physical sight. He saw it all. He, he, he was there when Jesus cast out demons from, uh, from people over and over again. He was there when Jesus reached out a hand and healed the lame and saw them get up and walk. He was there when Jesus touched the eyes of the blind and they saw. He was there when he put his hand over the, uh, the ears of a deaf, deaf man and he heard. He was there when he touched, uh, touched the coffin in that funeral procession of the widow of Nain where her son was dead. Touched the coffin and saw her son rise from the dead. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when he multiplied the loaves and fish. He said, I saw it all. My own eyes. He goes a step further and he says, which we have looked at. Now that sounds a little, little weak or perhaps redundant. I saw it. We looked at it. I like the word beheld. That's what King James uses. We beheld him. The Greek word is theaomai, which is a more contemplative word rather than just looking at something. That's just seeing the Greek dictionary says it means to behold, to look upon attentively, to contemplate, and to perceive. It's the same word he uses in John 1.14 that we just read. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. We experienced it. We perceived his glory. They were looking deeply into the realities of who Christ was, of his power to forgive, of his power over demons, of his power over disease, his power over death. So John says, I not only saw the events, saw the man with my own eyes, but I saw the meaning behind it. I saw and understood what was going on. I, I, I understood that this was God in human flesh. We beheld him. And then he adds one more, what, what, what we beheld and our hands have touched or handled. The Greek word means to touch, to feel, to handle. It's one thing to touch. It's something else to handle. There's a difference. It describes a closeness of relationships. They were walking together, shoulder to shoulder, no doubt bumping into each other with the crowds that were moving around. They greeted each other perhaps with, with a hug or a holy kiss. It's what, what we do when we have a close relationship with someone. Scripture tells us that at the Last Supper, John was sitting so close to Jesus on the floor there, when he uh, needed to ask Jesus a question, he leaned back um, upon Jesus, leaning back against Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? So there's that closeness of all of them. 
And John's not just saying, I saw it, I, I hear it, I did it all. He's saying, we, all of us disciples, every day, we all have seen him, heard him, held him, touched him. That was real for all of us. And we see his conclusion after he says all these things that he experienced with his senses is that the life appeared. That was reality. The word of life was manifested. God appeared in the form of Jesus, the word of life. And all of this is how we experienced him. Not only is he the word of life, but he's also the word of eternal life, John goes on to say. The life appeared, verse 2. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That eternal life, that, that word of life, was none other than the eternal life which was with the Father and then was manifested to us. See, fallen sinful creatures that we are could never ascend to heaven and seek God. And so the Son had to descend to earth and seek us. The word of life and the eternal life are one and the same. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him, John says, was life. In him and only in him was eternal life. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. In John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me claiming to be the life. John's conclusion is found in 1 John, the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, and it's very clear. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. One or the other. That's all there is. So John is certain he's certain about the permanence of the word of God, uh, word of life, excuse me. He doesn't bring a new message. He's certain about the sensibility of that eternal life, the word of life, because he personally experienced it, which he says over and over again, even verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Three verses, three times he keeps repeating this. And that brings us then to the third certainty, and that is the need to proclaim the word of life. My responsibility, he says, is to bear witness to and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's what he's commanded us to do, John is saying. The best witness in a court case is what? It's an eyewitness. And John's saying, I'm an eyewitness. I was there, I saw, I touched, I experienced it, and therefore I can proclaim to you the very word of life. The manifestation then becomes a proclamation. The manifestation becomes a proclamation. The manifestation of the word of life must now be proclaimed. John's heart's desire was that the believers in the churches that he's writing to would be able to experience that same certainty or come back to that same certainty in the Word of God written and in the Word of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Why was that his desire? Because that's the desire of God himself. Jesus gave us the same command to proclaim the Word of life. We call it the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, proclaim it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is certainty. It was for John. It is for us. 
There's another certainty that we find here that John writes about in these, in these verses, and that is a certainty of a true fellowship. A certainty of a true fellowship. He says at the end of verse 3, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That fellowship with God, with the Father and with the Son can only happen when the message is proclaimed and received. There's no other way. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on in the next verse and asks this question, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they hear without us proclaiming it? That's the responsibility of us here at Sio Community Church as well. We need to be proclaiming His Word. When we talk about fellowship, you know, we often talk about potlucks back in the fellowship hall and getting together and sitting around food and, and, and talking. But when we're talking about biblical fellowship, what John refers to here, he uses the word koinonia, which means fellowship. But it has a stronger sense of joint partic- participation as in a partnership. It's not just a relational connection. It's, it's about a real partnership, just as in a marriage partnership, where they become one. So the way of understanding this is that the preaching of the gospel produces faith, and a person who puts their faith in Christ enters into a real partnership then with other believers. That's why they refer to us as being the family of God. We are in one family. It's a real sharing of life. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it's used in this context. It says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have entered into a partnership with Christ as well. Not just with one another, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And this is never more clearly stated than when Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's that true fellowship. That's that true partnership. The partnership that we have, that's the kind of fellowship that we're talking about. And this partnership, this fellowship that we have is with one another, but in verse 3 he says, also with the Father and also with the Son. So what happens when we are saved? We're immediately placed into this relationship. We're immediately placed into this partnership with God and with Christ and with other believers. The partnership is so intimate that we become the temple of God. And we are in some ways indistinguishable from Christ, or we should be. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's a real partnership. It's a sharing of his life. You know what's fascinating? We're also, according to 2 Corinthians 13, have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit, do we not? The temple of God, the place where Christ dwells. So in reality, the whole Trinity takes up residence in our life. That's a mind-boggling concept. So John says, look, this is where the foundation is. Here are the basics. The old gospel message that was preached from the beginning concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the eternal life, the one who was with the Father and was manifest to us, that's the message I am preaching now. And it's a true message. I was there, I heard it, I saw it, I studied it, I handled that truth, I know what I'm talking about. 
And it's that message which I proclaim, he's saying, and I proclaim it in order that those who hear may enter into this wonderful fellowship. Folks, we are partakers of the divine nature. That too is an awe-inspiring concept. We are partakers of the divine nature. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Why? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature. That's that new nature that we studied about in Colossians. Our old nature is dead. We now participate in the divine nature. That's our true fellowship. So John says here, in, here, here's the foundation. As I begin writing this letter, this is what I'm certain about. I'm certain about the message. It's the same message from the beginning. I'm certain that the word of life was manifest in the flesh because I was there. I heard it. I saw it. I studied it. I, I, I felt it. I'm certain that this is the message that we are to proclaim, and I'm certain that in proclaiming it, the purpose is that you might enter into this fellowship, that you might become a possessor of that life of God. And that should be our desire for everyone around us. We talked about it in, in our spiritual growth class. The, 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 time, the time is nearing its end. We're, we're, we're a day closer than we were yesterday. A lot of things going on that seem that we're, we're on the precipice of, of the end. And our responsibility is to share with people the fellowship, this same fellowship that is possible. And finally, John says, I am certain about something else. One more thing. The word of life will provide joy. That's certain. The word of life will provide joy. Joy. Verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. He's not talking about he and his disciples. He's the last one standing. Our, the believers. You know what joy really is? It's full satisfaction. Total fulfillment that can never be lost. That's joy. For the kingdom of God, Paul says in Romans 1, is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. <laughs> In the Holy Spirit. There is joy in the Lord. No wonder Paul repeatedly says, Rejoice always. And again, I say, Rejoice. One author summarized it this way A certain message, a certain witness to that message, proclaims a certain gospel, which brings us into a certain fellowship, which produces a certain joy. Isn't that cool? That's John's message. And folks, may we stand strong on these certainties and never waver in a world that loves uncertainty, in a world that does not want absolutes, in a world that does not want to know the truth. Let us stand on the truth and never be swayed. And may our joy be complete in it. Father, this morning we thank you that we have that certainty. We have something solid to stand on. I've been on, on boats that uh, I don't have a good standing in, on. <laughs> when they're, they're tossed by waves and, and uh, the wind and everything else going on, you never know if you're going to be lurching to one side or the other side. Father, we don't need to have that. We can be certain. We can stand strong on the solid rock. The solid rock is Jesus himself. And Father, as, as we sing about what we know, the truths of Scripture, Father, I pray that you would... Uh, just make that so firm in our minds and our lives that as we exit the church building and go into our regular daily lives through the week, 
that that certainty will still be there. And we will not be swayed by fine-sounding arguments and, and uh, reasoning that sounds so loving and concerning. Father, we need to come back to the truth, stand strong on that, and show the love of Christ. And Father, put it in our hearts, the need to proclaim that love of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming is speaking. And I pray that you'd open up those opportunities for us to proclaim Jesus' love so they too can become part of that wonderful fellowship full of joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.